Welcome to Savvy Saps Podcast. I'm your host, Serena Salvati. My special guest today is investigative journalist Max Blumenthal. He's also the founder of The Gray Zone. Welcome back, Max. Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It was great to see you uh, in Boston and to hear your talk. I really enjoy going to events like that. Uh, it was about, I think, maybe a week or so before you came here. Miko Palid was here. So I actually went to his talk as well. And I just think it's really good for people if they can get out and go to attend those talks, because obviously there's things that we can talk to you about, you can talk to us about, and sometimes we cannot discuss these things on YouTube. So I always think those talks are really important. Yeah. It was the first talk I'd given on Palestine, I think, in years. Um, and it really felt like the movement that I knew that had cohered around Palestine, around Israel's 2014 assault on Gaza, has really come back together in a major way uh, and is stronger than it was before. So it was great to be out there and to, and to finally meet you in person. Well, actually, we'd met before in person, but to actually get to talk really yeah good. so speaking of israel uh and and gaza one of the things that we've noticed is when you listen to a lot of these these pundits on mainstream media they're all repeating the same talking points they're pro-israel talking points and one of the big ones that i've been hearing recently is there is no occupation don't say that the Palestinian people are occupied and the way that i kind of look at it is though if you have a group of people and they are fenced in they're not free to move. They need permission just to leave the, the gate uh, to go into Israel. To me, to me, it feels like they are being occupied. But unlike myself, I know that you have actually been to Gaza. And I want to hear about some of the things that you witness in reference to what life is like for the Palestinian people in Gaza and this idea of, of mainstream media and the narrative that they have around this particular war. Well, you, you should take a trip to Israel, Palestine and just see East Jerusalem. You can basically take a 15 minute taxi ride there from the airport, or you can cross in, you can go to anyone watching this, you, and you could go to Jordan, go take a taxi from Amman, the airport there into the occupied West Bank, and you'll just see it all for yourselves right away. You don't need to go to the Gaza Strip. Like, let's talk about East Jerusalem because Israel would like the Israeli government would fervently deny that the population there is under occupation. If you want to be a Palestinian in East Jerusalem, you have to prove constantly that you actually live there to the Israeli government supplying bills and quote unquote proof of life. Israel actually has a law called the proof of life law, which only applies to non-Jewish residents of East Jerusalem. And if they cannot provide proof of life, then they lose their home. They lose their title to their home and settlers move in. And you see that constantly around Sheikh Jarrah and all these areas where the settlers are putting pressure. And one reason for this law is to open room for settlers, but also to prevent Palestinians in East Jerusalem from having a life in the West Bank uh, where their families might live or, or where they might marry someone. So if a Palestinian from East Jerusalem marries someone from the West Bank, there's only one place they can live. And it's a ghetto called Kufar Aqab, which is on the uh, on the other side of the apartheid wall, this giant wall that's built in and around the West Bank. But it's not part of the Palestinian Authority that technically controls the heavily populated Palestinian areas of the West Bank. So you're on the other side of a wall, but you're technically part of the Jerusalem municipality. So imagine you're in the Boston municipality, but there's a wall separating you from the rest of Boston. So no fire trucks can reach you. No police cars can reach you. No ambulances can reach you. No trash trucks can reach you. No one can reach you who can repair the, the traffic lights. And you're basically living in a dead zone. And then there's this other government that is all around you, which is not even a real government. It's basically a uh, subcontractor. 
and they are not allowed to provide you with services. So if someone from East Jerusalem marries someone from the occupied West Bank, they live in an area where there are basically no services. And I've been there. You see trash piled up all around the streets. Potholes are everywhere. I mean, it's basically like uh, off-roading going through the streets. There was one traffic light which the local residents kept repairing, but they stopped repairing it. And that is a, a critic. Like if you understand Kufar Aqab, you understand the whole system of apartheid because Israel also has a, a law of entry and a national law or a Jewish national law, which are designed to prevent Palestinians from inside Israel, who are technically citizens of Israel, from marrying Palestinians under occupation. And that is to prevent the Palestinian birth rate from growing or to prevent Palestinians from gaining Israeli citizenship because Israel is a Jewish state. So as a Jewish state, they consider Palestinians to be a demographic threat. And that is one way we can understand the Gaza Strip. Now that we understand the whole system of apartheid, it's easy to understand the Gaza Strip. There are 2.2 million people there. Almost all of them, like 85% of them, are technically refugees. They rely on the UN for schools and food and so on. They're living in a human warehouse because they're not Jewish. They were pushed off their land in 1948 by what would become the state of Israel and put in this warehouse for eternity, which is now a death camp. And who is doing the dying disproportionately in the Gaza Strip? It's the demographic threat, the babies, the children, and the women, because the, the Palestinian womb is a direct threat to the apartheid system of Zionism because it gives birth to people who the Israeli government officially refers to as a demographic time bomb. So, um, how racist is that? How anachronistic is that system in the 21st century as for everything that's wrong with the United States? Consider if the United States referred to its own indigenous population or the black population or the brown population, and there are Americans who refer to this, but officially, if it referred to them as a demographic time bomb and took measures to prevent them from getting married and giving birth. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because one of the things I noticed, you mentioned the West Bank and the UN has time and time again, they've declared that the settlements in the West Bank are illegal. And I applaud the UN for making the statement. The, the UN, I feel, is notorious for making these statements or writing these strongly worded letters, as I would call it. I know you have actually spoken to the UN in person, but I feel like once the UN makes that statement, there doesn't seem to be a next step. It's like, okay, you declared that the settlements are illegal. What is the next step after that? What are you going to do? Is someone going to do something to prevent Israel from kicking Palestinian people out of their homes. And it seems like there's just no follow through, there's no accountability. So you haven't spoken to the UN, what happens after that? When you go to have these speeches, I know you have, Danny Haifong has spoken to the UN. When you do this after that, what is the next step? Who is supposed to come in and make a state like Israel accountable? Well, I spoke to the UN about Ukraine. Um, but the UN Security Council is unable to enforce any or pass any uh, real binding resolutions which would force Israel's hand because of the United States, because it's a member, permanent member state and the permanent member states get a veto. So the US vetoed the ceasefire resolution. What really would need to happen is for the UN Security Council to vote for sanctioning the state of Israel. But the United States, of course, makes that impossible. That's the only way the UN system could actually bring force to bear and change the situation on the ground. We've seen something like 130 UN staffers, according to Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, be killed in the Gaza Strip. And you have this psychopath sitting there in the UN chamber, Gilad Erdan, the Israeli ambassador, wearing this fake yellow Jewish star as Jews were forced to wear in the ghettos of 
Western uh, Nazi occupied Western Europe during World War II. And his he's representing a government that is murdering UN staffers day after day, bombing UN schools, bombing UN convoys. He should be ejected from the UN, but the UN can't even defend itself against this malevolent force, which is openly aiming at the destruction of the UN system and the whole system of international law. I mean, that's one of Israel's ultimate targets. So when Israel gets to carry out this heinous genocide, something we haven't witnessed in our lifetimes, a heinous genocide that's just playing out day after day, you can watch the most hideous scenes on social media, promoted not just by Palestinian accounts or Palestinian journalists, by Israeli accounts who are proud of the war crimes they're committing. Uh, when this is happening, Israel is telling other countries that want to do this to their restive populations that if we can, if we get away with this, well, you can do so as well. And in fact, we're developing the technology and the political means that we can export to you so that you can do this in the future to anyone who rebels against you from within or without. Um, and that's very appealing, particularly to Western countries that are operating along the lines of neoliberal capitalism who are facing increasing pressure from migrants, uh, from their own urban populations, and which are backing this assault uh, and see Israel not only as a customer for their own weapons, but as an exporter and producer of, of advanced surveillance technology and new experimental mechanisms of warfare. So basically, Israel is completely shifting the world system towards one which tolerates and supports genocide. And really, the only thing standing between that and the rest of us is whatever resistance the Palestinians are able to put up. There's also this issue with Netanyahu, where he actually had explained this in front of the UN, this idea of a greater Israel which includes part of Syria, part of Lebanon, uh, part of Jordan, and the Gaza Strip is, is gone. So it's as if Israel did expand. I wanna get your take about that because to me that's, that's very telling. I feel like Israel has been pretty overt about the idea that they do not want the Palestinian people there. They want to expand the state uh, of Israel. And yet at the same time, mainstream media is pretending to ignore this or they actually have pundits uh, from Israel lie and say that that's not the case, even though we've seen Netanyahu himself say that that is the plan. What do you feel is the danger there, this idea of expanding Israel, especially considering the fact that Israel is also bombing Lebanon and Syria as well? Well, Israel is a always been an expansionist settler colonial entity that has refused to set borders. We don't know where it starts or where it ends or where it will end. And neither does the Israeli government. So Netanyahu gave this speech at the UN where he was trying to point out that Israel was just in a region surrounded by hostile entities. This was last summer, I believe. It was before October 7th. And Palestine did not figure into his map. There was no Palestine. There was no Gaza Strip. And that was a factor in October 7th because what was taking place at that time was Netanyahu was trying to, was being able to go over the heads of the Palestinians with the permission of the Biden administration and the Trump administration before that to enact the so-called Abraham Accords, a peace of the rich, a peace between the rich, between Israel and the deeply undemocratic monarchic monarchical Gulf states, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, which is like the big, maybe the biggest sellout state in the Middle East, uh, parking lot for the fifth fleet of the US Navy. And so the Palestinians had no options on the table to assert any diplomatic leverage, none. Partly because of the P Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, he was just sitting there uh, in a semi-catatonic state, much like Biden performing subcontracting, subcontracting services for the occupation. But there was this robust military resistance force in the Gaza Strip run by 
Hamas, which was officially is officially declared a terrorist organization by the West to deny it any diplomatic ties to anyone in the outside world, even though it effectively controls 2.2 million people and has a mass base across the Palestinian uh, diaspora from the West Bank through the refugee camps. So basically, what option did they have except to use force? That isn't a justification for everything they did, but when the Israeli prime minister completely erases Palestine at the UN and his patrons in Washington completely erase Palestine and Israel is going to, for the first time, be able to officially normalize with the wealthiest, most powerful Arab states, Palestinians are left with really no other option except to pick up the gun because the olive branch has been buried. Uh, and it was all, all along at that time, hundreds of Palestinians were being killed, just cut down in the West Bank where they're completely defenseless. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are less defenseless because they have a kind of paramilitary force. So they took it upon themselves to do this operation that succeeded, absolutely succeeded in one sense. It put Palestinians back at the center of history. Uh, it removed them from the icebox that the Israel and the US had conspired to place them in. And it canceled normalization between Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain. Max, how do you, what do you feel is the best way to push back on this talking point? Uh, Rabbi Shmuley has made this talking point. Pierce Morgan has made this talking point that the Palestinian people were offered a two-state solution multiple times and they turned it down. I, I would add that there was also the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002. And if I remember correctly, Israel was the one that rejected that. But how do you, what do you feel is the best way to push back on that talking point that the Palestinian people turned down the idea of a two-state solution? They were never offered a state. They were never offered a state. Even the, the broker of Oslo, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, declared in his last speech before the Knesset that he will provide the Palestinians with less than a state. Uh, this was in Hebrew. It was for the consumption of the Israeli public. And a state-sponsored rabbi in one of the extreme settlements of the uh, West Bank city of Hebron issued essentially a fatwa, an edict, declaring uh, Rabin to be a rodef, a traitor to the Jewish people, and sanctioned his assassination by one of his students. And that was the end of that That element in Israeli politics from the Labor Party, which was willing to give the Palestinians something but less than a state. And what was it really? We saw at Camp David in 2000 under Bill Clinton what it was. It was a complete betrayal of Palestinian nationalism that Arafat and the PLO had signed on to without ever seeing any plans. They weren't going to get anything in East Jerusalem. They were going to get a tiny little outpost in East Jerusalem called Abu Dis as the Palestinian capital, which is basically home to a giant garbage dump and a, a ghetto of Palestinians who are on the verge of expulsion constantly. They weren't going to get Sheikh Jarrah. They were not going to get control over the Arab quarter in, East Jeru in, in, in the old city of Jerusalem. None of that was going to take place. They were not going to even get control of the West Bank. They wouldn't have no ability to control their own borders, their airspace, to have a military, to even control their own water. They weren't even allowed to control their own imports and exports under the Paris Protocols. Israel is going to remain the tax collector for this Palestinian authority. It was going to be a series of cantons that would represent 22% of historic Palestine. So actually, when Bill Clinton says, I offered them, as if it was something for him to give the American president, I offered them 98% of everything they asked for. It was 98% of 22%. Oh, and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank were never going to be connected. They had no plans to connect them. But there was, an, and, and, and then you have the right of return. Six million Palestinian refugees will be permanently confined to ghettos in hell in places like Sabra and Shatila in Beirut, which I visited 
it is, you know, it makes some American housing projects look like uh, luxury condos. I hate to say that, but it's, I mean, you have families of 10 living on top of each other in two to three room shacks in a country that has denied them the ability to work over 70 jobs because there's so much economic pressure there and poverty. They are confined to live there forever because according to the two-state solution provided to the Palestinian occupation authority, occupation subcontractor by the Americans and the Israelis, Palestinians are a demographic time bomb. They're a demographic threat, so the refugees cannot be allowed to come home. So how was any of that acceptable? It wasn't, and now we see Netanyahu just coming out and admitting everything that he has worked throughout his entire career to prevent a Palestinian state. And that's why people should, in Israel should support him because the Jewish Israelis, by and large, a vast majority of them, an overwhelming majority, oppose a Palestinian state and will not support any politician who agrees with it. I could go on for the next hour about this, but it's just one of the biggest colonial lies that we hear that they were just offered this wonderful state and they walked away from it. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. There's also the issue uh, with the media, which I talked about this last night. This is a wild story, but uh, The Intercept actually reported this. It says CNN runs Gaza coverage past Jerusalem team operating under the shadow of an IDF censor. So it turns out that The Intercept reported that apparently CNN all this time, not actually starting with October 7th, the article says that they've been doing this for years. They have been running their coverage, anything that has to deal with Israel, running that coverage through Jerusalem first before they publish it. And I want to get your take about that as someone who's a part of obviously independent media. How do you feel about the fact that here we have mainstream media where YouTube will tell you that they are actually real news and they are basically getting the approval of the IDF before they publish stories about Israel, which obviously means that their stories in reference to Israel and Gaza is gonna be biased. Yeah, I mean, I didn't share the article because it wasn't revelatory to me. I'm glad that someone did it, The Intercept published it. Um, but C I mean, CNN has been putting openly Zionist anchors like Jake Tapper and Dana Bash and Wolf Blitzer, who is a former staffer for APAC, the key arm of the Israel lobby. They've been putting them out front since October 7th to openly shill for Israel and its assault on Gaza. So it's like what I, what I found here was not surprising at all, including that CNN hired on a freelance basis an active duty Israeli soldier to file reports. Um, that doesn't surprise me because look at the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times is you know, it, it makes more of an effort to seem balanced on this issue than CNN, which is just a straight up outsourced press operation for the Israeli foreign ministry at this point. The New York Times Bureau is in a house that I visited in Jerusalem that was stolen from a Palestinian family, the Karmi family. Hassan Karmi was the bureau chief for BBC Arabic in 1948 when Israeli troops came and drove him out of his neighborhood in Jerusalem. His daughter, Gada Karmi, is one of the most famous Palestinian activists in the UK. And Thomas Friedman in the 1980s purchased this stolen Arab home that belonged to the Karmi family and made it the New York Times Bureau. And it remains such today. And the New York Times bureau chief in Jerusalem, Isabel Kirshner, is an Israeli, as far as I know, and has had a son in the Israeli army. So she's writing all their copy. She absorbs all the anxieties that are familiar to Jewish Israelis. And she's posing as this objective reporter for the newspaper of record. Former bureau chief at the New York Times, Ethan Bronner, also had a son in the Israeli army. He's now the, um, what is he? Uh, Israel bureau chief and senior editor for the Middle East at Bloomberg News. Then David Brooks, this neocon uh, New York Times columnist, his son is active in the Israeli army. And actually his unit, according to David Brooks, took many losses on October 7th. So it just, it, it just, the whole 
system of Zionism and the ideology of Zionism is deeply enmeshed in U.S. legacy and corporate media to the point where it becomes indistinguishable from Israeli media, except in the in the way that it attempts to um, generate consent for what Israel's doing among Americans. They use different techniques, um, more sensationalist techniques, and they, of course, have to appeal to liberal American sensibilities, whereas the Israeli sensibility at this point is just straightforward fascism, you know, images of destruction and slaughter uh, to confirm that the Israeli army is winning. So uh, this article, this this piece about CNN didn't shock me at all. And just a quick, a quick final point here. Uh, I'm sure you saw our live stream or heard about our live stream since you follow this, you know, our little, our little world of, uh, marginalized uh, independent media personalities where we grilled a uh, Washington Post reporter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that that was the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do that and was so indignant about her interview request to me was that she herself is a committed Zionist posing as an objective reporter covering social media for the Washington Post. And she was coming at us at the gray zone for doing actual investigative journalism, holding this powerful genocidal military in Israel to account, not only for killing Palestinians, but for killing Israeli citizens on October 7th. And she accused us of minimizing atrocities on October 7th for reporting on friendly fire orders from the top by Israeli officials. Um, now, today, Haaretz, the liberal Israeli newspaper, has an editorial demanding an investigation into the friendly fire killing of Israeli civilians on October 7th. So how are we the bad guys? A reporter is supposed to, I mean, this is just classic punching down by the Washington Post. And so I'll take every opportunity to go after these people and expose how they have an ulterior sectarian agenda that aligns them with the apartheid entity that is guilty of the most heinous atrocities of our time and that they are complicit in these atrocities as members of the media. That's right. And it, it reminds me of the New York Times article. I know you actually just had a, a somewhat of a debate with Robbie uh, on Rising about that New York Times article about the assaults that they claim happened on October 7th. And the reason why I bring that up is because I really felt like that was a desperate attempt because I felt like Israel was actually losing the propaganda narrative in reference to the media because the public is heavily against it. We see that with the amount of protests, the protests are still happening all across the globe. So I think this is the first time they really have to, oh my God, what are we going to do? They're not buying our, our PR stunt. So we have to come up with something else. Now, all of a sudden, this story emerges that there were sexual assaults that happened on October 7th, while all this other stuff was going on, apparently. And to me, I'm just like, we saw the video footage of the hostages being released from Hamas. We saw hostages actually say that they were treated well. But at the same time, the state of Israel didn't want those hostages to be interviewed. Now, all of a sudden, there's this story of mass sexual assault that apparently happened on October 7th. And I'm like, you guys didn't mention this before. Then they say the witnesses don't want to be named. And I'm, so I said, how do I know these people even exist? I don't know. And, and there's no evidence. And so for me, one of the things I think that I've learned from the gray zone is that not everything is black and white. Sometimes you do have to ask these questions. Like sometimes there is that gray area, but it was interesting to me how far it seems like they're willing to go just to get um, well, more so Americans just to get the American people to side with Israel and against the Palestinian people. Yeah, that, that is an excellent point. This is just about political desperation at a, and it, and they deployed this Hamas mass rape narrative at a time of uh, political opportunity and desperation as liberal support began to falter for their assault. They had a lot of support, just as George W. Bush had a lot of liberal support after 9-11, Israel had a lot of liberal support after October 7th, but as the images of the dead babies and the dead women and just horror, sheer horror from the Gaza Strip start to flow in and even start to penetrate the MSNBC, Wine Ant Networks, uh, things, 
start to unravel and you have to do something spectacular in order to maintain that support. So you get Sheryl Sandberg and Hillary Clinton at your Israeli mission at the UN, reliable stooges and convince them that rape took place on a mass scale on October 7th. And then maybe you can buy a little bit more time. This is a war. Israel doesn't play by the laws of war. They don't play by any rules. All they want to do is destroy the enemy to maintain their colonial project. And their war is not fought only through military means. It's fought in the gray zone of propaganda and information warfare. And that's what this Hamas mass rape uh, propaganda hoax is all about. And we've dismantled it at the gray zone. Electronic Intifada has dismantled it. Mondo Weiss has dismantled it. These are independent outlets doing what journalists are supposed to do which is to question the narratives of the powerful. And we have all the evidence we need to do so because the Israeli Social Security Service has published the names of all the dead and the circumstances of their death. It's also available at Haaretz and other public on other public records. And we can match up those that evidence against the claims that appear, for example, in the New York Times bogus article by Jeffrey Gettleman and it really highlights how there is no there are no evidentiary standards for US media to print these narratives and there is no evidentiary evidentiary basis for the narratives put forward by these so-called eyewitnesses I don't I won't go through all the sources I don't have time to do it um, you know I, I did that yesterday on bad faith uh, with Brianna Joy Gray, and we've done it at the Gray Zone. We're going to publish uh, our questions that we're going to submit to the New York Times. But we've clearly flipped. We've flipped the script on them. They thought that they could get away with this, and that it would frighten people so much, especially to see it in the New York Times, and shock them so much that no one would even dare question it publicly for fear of being called rape apologists uh, or Holocaust deniers. And we just weren't, we weren't playing that because I don't trust them. I know an Israeli official is lying when he or she is in public, when their mouth is moving, when they're typing words. And here is another lie. It's also interesting, too. Uh, this is something I pointed out to my audience recently. Notice how the narrative is this all began on October 7th. They want to dismiss the history or anything that happened prior to October 7th. They do the same thing with Russia and Ukraine, Max. They say this all started when Russia invaded Ukraine, as if yeah. nothing happened before that, as if Ukraine was not you know, pushing upon Russia's borders before that. They forget the Minsk Accords. They don't want to hear any of those things. And great I feel, point. again, that's a big part of the propaganda narrative. That's a great point. Uh, or 9-11. Everything changed on 9-11. Remember that? Yeah. I mean, we are just not allowed to be historical. We are not allowed to apply context. And the only questions that we are al allowed to answer are those which compel obedience to power. Do you condemn Hamas? There's only <laughs> one answer to that. And when you give the answer, you obey power. Uh, and what we're saying is, I mean, our role is to just reject that paradigm uh, and to be intelligent, you know? And, and I think we're at a point now, three months since October 7th, where the lines are very clearly divided, uh, there really is no gray zone here. And the people who are capable of critical thinking, skepticism, uh, and, 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 and maintain an interest and commitment to history are on one side and the Zionists are on the other. That's right. I wanna pivot really quickly to um, RFK Jr. because I don't know if you're aware, but I did see on Twitter, it appears that he has a new communications director. Uh, so not the same uh, person he had before, which was Stephanie. So interesting. A lot of, yeah, I meant to tell you about I meant to tell you about that um, the other day, but I forgot. But a lot of people have have brought up this question now that he has a new communications director. 
Do you think there is more so a possibility now that you could have that that conversation with him? Because a lot of people want to see that conversation happen. Obviously, I know you're you were open to having that conversation. Do you think something could shift there now that he has a new communications director in reference to having this discussion with him on Israel and Gaza? Well, the short answer is no. Uh, and I wonder if I would even want to have it. Um, I have a sense based on some sources that people inside his campaign are unable to have these conversations, uh, which may be why he has a new communications director. But the RFK Jr. campaign is not an independent campaign. It is not a grassroots campaign. It is a campaign increasingly guided by big money and big donors, including big ultra-Zionist donors. I believe that one of them is Miriam Adelson, the wife of the late Sheldon Adelson, who was the key broker of Donald Trump's ultra-Zionist policy, as well as the Abraham Accords, was a longtime donor to who helped basically fund Netanyahu's political career and who publicly called for dropping a nuclear weapon on Iran. Uh, Bobby Kennedy later this month will be doing a public event alongside Miriam Adelson and Shmuley Botia, the uh, reality show pseudo rabbi and dildo salesman <laughs> who is spending much of his time harassing adolescents at ice skating rinks in the New York area. It, 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 it's, I, I want to say it's shocking, but it just shows a complete lack of dignity and honesty by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to come out and present himself as a champion of free speech and a opponent of the war state and to surrender to these forces and allow them to completely engulf his campaign, which is dead as an independent force. Uh, yeah. it's, and, and then there's another factor here, Tulsi Gabbard. It's expected that she will sign on as his vice president. <laughs> <laughs> Here's someone who actually started out as a kind of right-wing Democrat who received an award from Sheldon and Miriam Adelson. Just look up photos of her and the Adelsons. She was hanging out with them freely and Shmuley. Shmuley was a good friend of hers early on. She then started to move into a more interesting place where she was challenging the US proxy war on Syria. She was the lone voice in Congress doing this. She was on the debate stage with the Democrats calling out the warmongers. And now after being spit out of the Democratic Party and then welcomed into a wing of the Republican Party with open arms, she's come full circle. And it appears that she's coming back to the place where that the, Adel the seat at the table that the Adelson family in the Israel lobby has reserved for her. And she's a complete stooge and a shill for Israel, which means she's like a stooge for the deep state at this point. And these people just need to be um, treated with total contempt. These are the people you're referring to, correct? This event here, the World Values Network presents choosing life amid the loss of a there parent. Child. Okay, uh, Ricarda Luke, RFK Jr., Miriam Adelson, and Rabbi Shmuley. Yeah, I mean, and Rabbi Shmuley, I mean, just his public behavior is, is just, just a total lack of dignity in, he's just an insane public harasser. He's out in Times Square like a vagrant screaming at the guys who hand out um, discount drink cards to strip clubs because they're not supporting him on Israel. And this is the guy that RFK Kennedy chooses to associate himself with because he's a channel for Adelson money, in my view. Um, so who is the independent candidate right now who is on the ballot in enough states to actually make Biden pay a price for this genocide that the US is a direct participant in. Who is it? It's not Cornell West because his he's not on the ballot in any, I think he's only on the ballot in one state because he left the Green Party. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to be on the ballot in enough states. He gave a he gave a great speech in Dearborn by the way which is where independent candidates should be. They should be breaking into Michigan, which is where they can threaten Biden the most because of the, um, the strength of the Arab diaspora there. Uh, but I don't even know if he's on the ballot there. But the Green Party is on the ballot 
going to be on the ballot in like 20 states where 75% of the votes will be. Uh, and Jill Stein is someone who supports the BDS movement, who is fully on board with the Palestine Solidarity Movement and with uh, putting Netanyahu and the Israeli government before the ICC. So people need to eventually, if you decide that the Biden and Democrats need to be taught a lesson for what they're doing here and that they can't count on your vote while committing genocide, if you're taking the no genocide pledge, then everyone's going to have to eventually cohere around one independent candidate who's on the ballot. And that may not be um, you know, maybe if you prefer Cornell West, it may not be the person that you initially preferred, but I think Cornell West is going to have to make that decision too. Um, mm -hmm. it's early yet, but I think, uh, it's time to get strategic. Yeah. I think that Jill, another thing too, in 2016, Jill was actually on the ballot in over 40 States. She'll probably get there again. Uh, she actually just announced that she's on the ballot in Arizona, which is going to be huge this time around because she was actually the Green Party was not on the ballot in Arizona in 2020. And remember, Joe Biden actually won a significant amount of independent voters in Arizona in 2020. So the fact that the Green Party is now on the ballot in Arizona this time around, that could be a, a potential game changer. But all the things that that you just said about RFK Jr., why do you feel like some people still just don't see it? I, I feel like some people are looking for a hero. I mean, I pointed out the fact that RFK Jr. released this video where he was acknowledging the Armenian genocide. And I'm just like, the, <laughs> the gall of this guy, you're willing to acknowledge that, but you're not willing to acknowledge what's happening to the Palestinian people. I think he really does know the truth. I think he has been persuaded not to go there, uh, not to press up against the Israeli lobby. That's just my opinion. But it's just, it's, it's very in your face. Some of the same people that said they had an issue with big money, now all of a sudden they have no issue with big money because RFK Jr. is taking it. I just don't understand. I feel like people just want a hero. And I feel like some people have fallen in love with the idea of RFK Jr. as a president. And that's what they're hanging on. Yeah, I mean, it, there are some people for whom it, the Israel-Palestine issue is not as important as, for example, what happened during COVID, which was really traumatic for a lot of people. And he was brave on that issue. Um, whereas the other independent candidates were not. We didn't hear much from Jill Stein about that. Cornell West was doing like pro-Fauci propaganda. So for a lot of people, that is the, the big issue that compels them to support him. Other people are compelled by him being a Kennedy and they, <laughs> they, they hearken back to the days when the Democrats supported a major industrial base inside the US and were skeptical of the war state uh, and supported civil rights. And he wants to channel that tradition and they, they get nostalgic. Um, you know, a lot of the people who are in the JFK assassination conspiracy movement, and, and I'm, I'm not saying the word conspiracy uh, to dismiss them. I think, you know, their research is extremely important and legitimate. They think Kennedy RFK will bring out the files which every U.S. president is buried. So everyone has their reason for wanting to be around him. But my point is that when you submit yourself to the power of the Israel lobby, and not just the mainstream Israel lobby, but the extreme right-wing, pro-settler wing of the lobby that Adelson represents and Shmuley represents, you, 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 you take a poison pill that will eventually destroy the entire body of your politics and everything you represent until nothing's left anymore except what they control. And that's what he's done. Uh, and I'm told different things. You know, I see him on stage with Adelson. So I, it looks like there's a payoff. I'm told by people who know him, who are close to him, that he truly believes this stuff about Israel, although it looks like he was handed a script, but that he, in person, he delivers the script. Like in private, he's when he's supposed to be candid, he won't break from it. Some people speculate that it's about Epstein. I'm not really buying that because he's written very out front about his sexual peccadilloes and his former sex addiction. Like, I don't know what else could possibly come out that could damage him um, or that anyone would actually care. So uh, at this point, it just, it, for w w one, th one thing is clear, 
what could have been a really threatening campaign to both Donald Trump and Joe Biden has been destroyed from within because Bobby Kennedy Jr. is completely cut off from the independent podcast world that we represent or the independent journalism world, as well as the uh, pulsing heart of the activist community in the US, which is willing to go to war for you if you actually uh, represent something. And so they're still, they're out. All those thousands and thousands of people who are out in the streets for Palestine now, they're politically homeless, or should I say politically unhoused. And uh, they need to determine where their home will be pretty soon and not stay. I, I don't, like, I hate saying it, like I sound corny because like the, the, the 2020 propaganda was vote, vote, vote. And like you saw these liberals wearing like vote on their sunglasses and vote <laughs> masks, like three vote masks. And like uh, the, the, the other mask was like, you know, uh, a Ukraine flag. Um, but you should be prepared to vote against genocide and make Biden pay for this. That's right. And it's interesting you brought up JFK because I interviewed Rick Sterling recently. He wrote an article through Mint Press about the truth about JFK and where he stood on this issue with Israel. And JFK has a completely different position about Israel when you compare to what RFK Jr. believes. Or senior. Uh, or senior, exactly. Like they did not, and, and this is something when RFK has interviews, he's leaving this out. JFK did not agree with the fact of, of Israel having nuclear weapons. In fact, he questioned it multiple times and he wanted to visit there before you know what he was assassinated, could be connected, I don't know. But he did not agree with that. He did not agree with the direction that Zionism was moving in because he thought it would create problems like what we have right now. So he was not in, in the same camp with RFK Jr., but RFK Jr. is doing all these interviews and he's leaving that part out. Exactly, and uh, he's really channeling the tradition of Teddy Kennedy, his uncle, who ran against Carter from the like like Kudnik right and condemned Jimmy Carter for opposing Israeli settlement activity. That was one of his key talking points. And Teddy Kennedy, he was trying to get pro-Israel money um, Pro-Israel money powered his campaign, and he was the ultimate progressive except for Palestine, the ultimate hypocrite, which is so common right now in the Democratic Party. I mean, he supported progressive social policies. He supported, the, he, he was a, a, a vehement opponent of Bush's war in Iraq and the torture program. And at the same time, he supported Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu and every murderous Israeli prime minister to the hilt. Um, and that's that's sort of um, something that Bobby Kennedy Jr. has taken on as well. Uh, but the hypocrisy just doesn't wash anymore because the mask has been lifted on Israel. There is no liberal democratic Israel that anyone can point to. No one can say Israel just wants peace. If the Palestinians would just let them. Israel's open about its intentions, its leadership, openly says they want Nakba 2.0, which means they acknowledge Nakba 1.0. They openly say it. They openly say they aim to kill Palestinian civilians, as many as possible. The Israeli president, Isaac Herzog from the Labor Party, said there are no civilians in Gaza. These are the statements that are in the South African filing before the International Court of Justice, and they really show you what Zionism is and what Israel is. And so the younger generation that doesn't watch legacy media and that often reads like primary documents like the South African filing, they are not gonna go for this anymore. So Bobby Kennedy's left with a bunch, Junior is left with a bunch of kind of scattered, isolated boomer types uh, who are lost in nostalgia. Um, the, but the question is where does, every, I mean, where does everyone else go? Uh, and, by, and just another point about Bobby Kennedy is like, he coasted a lot off of um, the, the platform he got from Tucker and from Fox News early on. But he also, he, I think he poses the greatest threat to Donald Trump as an independent candidate. He poses a real threat to Trump because, I mean, he 
is going to peel off more votes from Trump than Biden. Mm. He would actually threaten Biden if he took a different position on Israel, but he threatens Trump. And you can see who he's cozying up with, especially if he has Tulsi Gabbard as his VP. That's a direct threat to Trump. So the Trumpist media is going to go after him at a certain point. Right. I can see that happen as well. You mentioned uh, Ted Kennedy. The other thing, too, is that Ted Kennedy killed a woman and got away with it. <laughs> there's there's that, too. <laughs> yeah. What's her name? Mary Jo um, Kopetny uh, at, uh, at uh, Chappaquiddick. Yeah. Um, he was drunk. And he drove off a bridge and sh into a river and she drowned and he managed to get out of the car. And I don't think, I, th I don't think he reported that he told the truth about her death. I mean, that's my recollection about it. Um, yeah. He, he basically went back to the party. So the thing about Mary is that when the police came the next day, so he reported it, I think the next day or someone else called it in the next day. What the police said is that if they would have been contacted the moment it happened, she would have actually lived because they said when they found her in the car, her head was pushed upwards, which meant she was trying to breathe. So they said she actually didn't die from drowning. She died from suffocation because of the oxygen in the car. But anyway, he got away with it. He was not held accountable because he was a Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, there, there, there is there. This is not an isolated, totally isolated incident. There is a long history of the Kennedy family ex uh, revealing or embodying the two-tiered system of justice in the U.S. Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy. I mean, look at his whole history as basically buy buying elections bootlegging and so on. But the only reason I would bring that up now, the only reason it's a fair critique of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is because he called Palestinians the most pampered people on the planet. He actually said that. So that's just disgusting. That's really I mean, bad. I gotta I gotta take off now. Mm -hmm. But thanks for that's the, cool, Max. I was just gonna say if you have anything else coming up you wanna let people know about any travels? Uh, all my travels are in the works now, but, uh, you know, just keep following us at the gray zone and, um, I'll actually be on Jimmy door tonight for the first time in a while. So I don't know when this is coming out, <laughs> but if it does come out today, I'll be on at seven Eastern time. Awesome. All right, Max, thank you so much for joining. Thanks a lot, Sabrina.